Let's pray. We come to you, O oh Father, as dependent children. We have nothing to offer you but what you have given us, plus our sin. And so we ask you, Father, to do what you always do. You give and you give and you give again. And you have called us to receive what you give with delight, with gladness of heart, and with a desire to learn, but not just to learn words and concepts and truths, but that we would learn Christ and become like him because of our time thinking about his words and his teaching, and his person. And we need your help, O oh Lord. Protect us from error, I pray. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Instruct us where we need to be instructed. Delight us with it all for the sake of your great name. For we pray it in our Savior's name, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen and amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, the elders have asked me to repeat a study that I've done that we've entitled God's Most Precious Possession. It's a study on the church that may take us up to seven weeks to complete. We've got one down, right? So six more, maybe. This is an important study for us right now. It, it seems like, it feels like, and this may not be statistically true, but doesn't it just feel like the church grows, the Lord is adding to our number week after week. I mean, how many of you, be honest, raise your hand, and uh, if you have greeted someone and asked them if this was their first time at Calvary and they said, no, we've been here for months, <laughs> or no, we became a member like last year, you know, raise your hand if that's happened, yeah, uh, so many of us. And we're very, the elders are very much uh, appreciative to the Lord, thankful to the Lord, for the growth, but it, it worries us as well. Because uh, not only are there more people to shepherd, but this church as a whole, it, it's, it's just so important that we don't slip away from the foundations that were laid early on. And this is one of them that got laid pretty early on that is so important to Calvary Bible Church. We have to understand the doctrine of the church. And it's not going to sound like you're hearing a systematic theology. This is, this is a topical study overall, but we're going from text to text, expositing these, these scriptures so that we come away with an understanding of the church the way God wants us to understand the church. If you have a heart that loves Jesus Christ, and if, by God's grace, I present this in an engaging manner, you will not be bored by this study. I hope you'll leave here talking about it, maybe pushing back a little bit so we can learn together. In any case, it's important for us to relay these foundation stones because there are so many people who are new. And we welcome you, those of you who are new, not just in this room, but down the hall. We know you're down there, and uh, the Lord bless you for being down there. It gives us more room down here, and we love the fact that God has brought you here. 
And we want you to learn these things. So let me just speak to those of you who are down in Fellowship Hall. Just because you're down there and I really can't see you, there's the true confession. Um, it doesn't mean that, that in some way you're, you, should, you, you get allowance to disengage. Don't do it. Focus, think, be careful about how you hear God's truth. And the Lord will bless us and strengthen us as a church. Now, last week, I introduced the topic of the church through a brief study of Ephesians chapter 1. And granted, it was kind of a flyover, a jet tour of, of Ephesians 1, because we were looking specifically at uh, what God wants us to know about his love for the church, both in eternity and in the present, and his love for the church in the future. This morning, the text that we'll be studying is Matthew chapter 16. If you don't have your Bible open there yet, please open your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew rack ahead of you. And just grab a Bible and open with me to Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Now, I'm compelled to turn to this passage this morning for two reasons. First, because it is a text that has been blatantly misappropriated by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we don't talk about Roman Catholicism very much as an evangelical community in this nation. In fact, by and large, Catholicism is just thought of as Christianity. Let me just ask you two questions. Can I just ask you two questions? How many of you, this is another, we don't do this very often, but here I am second time in this sermon asking you to raise your hand. How many of you would consider yourself Protestant? Raise your hand. That's good. Most of you, and those of you down the hall, I hope you raised your hands. Um, if you are a Protestant, let me ask you another question. You don't have to answer. If you're a Protestant, what are you protesting? What are you protesting? How many of you would consider yourself evangelical? Raise your hand. If you are an evangelical, that word means gospel. If you are an evangelical, what is your gospel? And what does it have to do with being Protestant? The answer to this question is this. What we are protesting as Protestants is the Roman Catholic view of the gospel. Hence, we call ourselves evangelical and Protestant. The Roman Catholic Church gets it wrong, and because they get that wrong, beloved, they are not Christian. They're Christian-esque, they're Christian sorta, but if the gospel is wrong, everything is externals. It's externalism. And I know that that's not popular, and, and I've had a couple of people over the years say to some of our folks, why does your pastor hate Roman Catholics? Listen. I love Roman Catholics. They're so close to the gospel. They're so close to salvation. If we would just be more faithful in being evangelical, understanding that just because they say they're Catholic doesn't mean they're Christian, maybe more of them would be here. And some of you are, many of you former Roman Catholics are here. And we praise God for the work he's done in your lives and in ours. The Roman Catholic interpretation of this passage, Matthew 16, has caused monumental confusion 
around the world regarding Jesus' teaching about the church. And secondly, I am compelled to preach from this text because properly understood, it delivers powerful encouragement for the church to remain faithful to its calling regardless of the world's opinion or mistreatment of Christian people. We are called to be faithful, and I believe this text was designed to help the apostles remain faithful and through them that we would be strengthened in faithfulness as well. Since the very beginning, there have been many forces determined to destroy the church. For example, Herod didn't know he was trying to destroy the church, but he was, as he attempted to destroy the church before it even began by killing all the babies in Bethlehem, the town of Jesus' birth. And we know that behind that wicked ruler was another wicked ruler, Satan himself. The Jews attempted to purge Israel of Christianity, first by killing Jesus and then Stephen. And in Acts chapter 9, we find Paul on the road to Damascus to arrest and execute followers of Christ. He was hell-bent to stamp out any remnant of Christianity. It's said the rage that of Emperor Nero was so fierce against the Christians that many, many might see cities full of bodies, the old lying with the young, women as well as men cast out into the open streets because they were Christian. In England, no other king or queen spilled as much blood in the time of peace as did Mary Tudor, Queen of England, you will know her infamously as Bloody Mary. For four years, she hung, beheaded, imprisoned anyone that she considered to be a threat to her authority, especially a religious threat. She was Roman Catholic. When her reign of terror was finally ended, England lost over 300 of their Protestant pastors, dissenting pastors. In 1900, the Empress of China gave orders to exterminate the Christian religion. The result was hundreds of believers being brutally executed, and you know what's happening in China today. In 1915, Turkish authorities became alarmed at the number of Armenian Christians in their country, and so they launched a campaign to get rid of them all. As a result, are you ready? 600,000. 600,000 men, women, and children were killed. In 1920, Joseph Stalin wrote these words, there can be nothing more abominable than religion. And then he set out to eradicate it from the Soviet Union, and 60 million people lost their lives. Today, the persecution continues around the world. In fact, it has been estimated that more Men, women, and children have lost their lives in the 20th century than, listen carefully, than all the years of the church combined. In the last hundred years, more people have died for Christ. I mean, we're so protected, and we're so loosey-goosey. I mean, we're, we're, we're just happy-slappy. We come to church. Everything is good. Nothing to cry about here except the normal pains and disappointments of life, but around the world, the persecution is on fire. 
The church has always been under assault by hostile external forces. Today, however, the church is also in danger of internal forces, and I think this is the greater threat for us, at least now. Christian leaders who sincerely believe that the ineffectiveness of the church's gospel mission in our country is owing to the fact that we've lost our relevancy in the world. The world just doesn't think that we are relevant. And therefore, the church must reinvent herself, they say, or face virtual oblivion. The result of this kind of thinking has been a constant quest for the magic mixture of spiritual wisdom, emotional stimulation, affirming community, art, music, and coffee that will make a church relevant and attractive to the lost. And all of this is evidenced by the many religious fads that have blown through American evangelicalism over the past several decades. These include the church growth movement, the house church movement, the seeker-sensitive movement, the emergent church movement, and the list just goes on and on. Who knows what's next? And I want to submit to you this morning, however, that the church, listen carefully, the church is not patently not in danger of slipping into oblivion. Let me say it again. The church is not in danger of slipping into oblivion. And that's true not because we do everything right. I mean, we do a lot wrong. I mean, the church in America is really messed up a lot. But the church of Jesus Christ, both here in America and around the world, is nowhere near slipping into oblivion. And listen carefully, it never will. It never will. Any church that is committed to the, basic, the basics of biblical preaching, fervent prayer, evangelism, the administration of the Lord's Supper and baptism, and the practice of church discipline will always be relevant in God's great plan of redemption no matter how big or how small. The real danger is not that the church might be perceived as irrelevant to the world, but in the end, after all of our chasing after the wind, spiritually speaking, we find ourselves irrelevant to God. Our text for this morning offers a powerful antidote to the fear that the church might fail in her mission. Here, Jesus lays out his promise regarding the future of the church. The question is, how can we be sure that the mission of the church will not fail? Well, our confidence is grounded in the teaching of Jesus Christ, who taught us these things. Number one, he taught us about the secure foundation of the church. He taught us the centrality of the church, the certainty of the church, that is. Number three, he's taught us about the preciousness of the church. Fourthly, the invincibility of the church. And then finally, not that we couldn't add more, but in the text we're looking at, finally, the authority of the church. Now, this is going to take me more than one week. You're surprised by that, right? Uh, I think this week and next week will be enough, but we're going to cover these five things. Now, once again, all of that was introduction. Let's go to the Word. So stand with me. If you would, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. 
We're going to read a short portion of this. Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon replied, Simon is Peter, by the way. Simon replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. I wish we had time to talk about why Jesus repeatedly said, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. But that's a different sermon. So, if we're going to be convinced that the church is secure and that she will fulfill her mission, now, now please let me throw in a caveat here. You individually may fail in your part of the mission. I may fail in my part of the mission. Shame on me if I do. But in the providence of God, his church will accomplish everything he sent her to do. And if he doesn't use me, he'd be happy to use someone other than me to accomplish what I'm supposed to accomplish. But let's talk about the foundation of the church. Let's begin by observing the content of this passage. Jesus has just asked his disciples who they believe he is, and Peter responds saying, you are the Christ. Christ there being, being the anointed one. It's a reference to him being king and the son of David. You are the Christ, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus' response to Peter is profound, powerful, and often misunderstood. Here's what Jesus said. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, this statement forms the object of a major disagreement between Roman Catholic teaching and Protestant evangelical teaching. Roman Catholics, the Roman Catholic authorities, their, their traditions, and the Pope say that this verse shows that the church was built on Peter as the first Pope. It forms the ground of what is known as papal succession, that there would be Peter and then someone after him to be Pope and someone after him to be Pope and someone after him to be Pope in successive order. And, and and it makes the Pope the very heart and soul of divine authority on earth. The final court of appeal, appeals in the Roman Catholic system is at the throne of the Pope. Protestants, however, see this statement as a play on words. In the Greek, it comes across as a pun. 
The name Peter means little stone. We contrast that with upon this rock. The rock here is a word that means large stone. And the rock that Jesus is speaking of, many say, refers to Peter's confession rather than to Peter himself. They would paraphrase the meaning like this. Peter, you are a little stone, but I will build my church on the solid rock, the great big boulder of the truth that you have just confessed, namely that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. The whole church will be built on that. Many also rightly point out that the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus himself is the head of the church, Ephesians 5.23 and Colossians 1.18. And nothing in the Bible speaks of a single earthly leader who should head the church in Christ's place. Of course, this view is much more consistent with other passages in the Bible than the Roman Catholic interpretation. And certainly, Jesus was not making Peter any kind of pope nor was he establishing a line of papal succession. But neither is it clear from the text that Jesus was making Peter out to be a small stone. Probably the more natural interpretation, and I could go with either one of these, I think, as you'll see, even with this one, we end up in the same place as evangelicals. The more natural interpretation, I think, is that the words here, the word is simply that Jesus' words tell us that he was simply addressing Peter, whatever, however poetically, as the leader and representative of the twelve. The New Testament, after all, does say that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And so there is a legitimate sense in which Peter and all of the apostles constituted the foundation on which the church would be built. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, the church that Jesus is building, is being constructed upon, and this is very, very, very important, so be careful here. The church that Jesus is building, the foundation upon which he is building it, is the teaching and the ministry of the apostles. Acts 2, 42 tells us that after the extraordinary events of Pentecost, the church experienced phenomenal growth very quickly. And the focus of the new believers as they met in each other's home was they devoted themselves to what, class? The apostles' teaching. And verse 42, 47 of that same chapter tells us, the Lord was adding to their number day after day those who were being saved. And then throughout the remainder of the account of the book of Acts, the apostles' teaching constitutes the foundation upon which every congregation is built. Peter himself tells us that the church is, is a building made up of living stones. It's, it's as if the picture here is kind of the temple of the Lord. Jesus, his spirit, dwells in the temple. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The apostles are the rest of the foundation. And we are being carefully placed into this holy place of God as living stones. A, a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's what Peter himself says in 1 Peter 
In other words, every single believer is an important stone in God's building project. Peter and the, the apostles were the foundation stones. Christ, not Peter, is the cornerstone. And every person who comes to God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is added to the church as a living stone in a spiritual house. More importantly, however, notice the text says nothing about Peter's successors. It says nothing about Peter's infallibility. It says nothing about his exclusive authority. And to the contrary, consider this. The Catholic Church's interpretation of this passage presents all kinds of problems. For example, what we learn about Peter in the New Testament is this. Here's a brief rundown of the Apostle Peter. Peter is the first disciple Jesus calls to himself from fishing boats of Galilee to be his disciple. Peter is the first to boldly proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Clearly, he becomes a prominent leader in the church throughout his lifetime. Matthew 16 and Acts 1 through 12 talk about his role. Nevertheless, he did not have, this is, listen carefully, Peter did not have supreme authority over the church. We find both he and John were sent as those under authority. They were sent to Antioch from Jerusalem to check out what the, the new believers were doing, what that new church was doing, not Antioch, but Samaria. He is held to account by his actions, for his actions at, by the church of Jerusalem when he reports back that the Gentiles have come to know Christ, and they had a hard time believing it. And Peter was kind of apologetic, you know, don't, don't blame me, I didn't make them I mean, you sent the, God sent the Holy Spirit upon them, not me. I mean, it wasn't my fault that the, the, that the Gentiles are a part of the church. They held his feet to the fire, and at the end, they determined that he was right. But it's clear there that he was not the ultimate authority. In fact, in that case, it was James who was the authority in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2, you remember, Peter is rebuked by Paul publicly because his actions were causing division in the church and confusion about the gospel. I mean, that's a sobering passage. When you see the Apostle Paul publicly going after Peter for causing confusion about the gospel. This is a man who, was he in authority? Yes, he was in authority. But he was under authority. And here in this passage we're, that we're studying this morning, just a few verses down, here's the kicker. Jesus calls Peter, what? Satan. Get thee behind me, Satan. So there's no biblical precedent for making Peter out to be pope over the church. The most we can say about Peter is that he was the first among equals. I mean, that's a privileged position. He was the first among equals, and on the foundation of such men, Jesus was building his church. And that, I believe is the important point of this passage. This is the foundation of the church. Jesus himself is the cornerstone. And the teaching of the apostles and their ministry forms the rest of the foundation of the church. And so when I stand up here to preach, 
I'm getting ready. After this series, I'll be in Colossians. Who wrote the book of Colossians? Here's an, here, here's an option. Phoebe. No. <laughs> Phoebe didn't write Colossians or Hebrews either. Some think she wrote Hebrews because nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Who wrote the book of Colossians? Tell me. Paul, the apostle. Why am I going to be expounding upon the book of Colossians? Because the church is founded on the teaching of the apostles. And that's true of all of the books of the New Testament. Not that Paul wrote them all, but they are grounded in the apostles' teaching. So that's the, the foundation of the church. Secondly, let's consider the, thir- the certainty of the church. The most important words in this passage are these, from Jesus. Listen carefully. I will build my church. I can't wait to get to next week when we talk about the preciousness of the church to Jesus. But I'll not go there yet. Everything else that is said here either points toward or springs from this declaration. I will build my church. This was an important truth for the disciples to learn, especially at this point in their ministry. I mean, consider this. I, I love this. When I, when I read about this, when I, even as I was reading over the sermon again yesterday, I was so helped, so encouraged by this. You see, the disciples have been with Jesus for two and a half years by the point, by the time they come to Matthew 16. And things had not played out as they had anticipated. It just, it wasn't going well. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. By all external appearances, Jesus' mission was failing. The disciples had expectations. Think of Judas, but not just Judas. I mean, they kept saying to him, are you going to set up your kingdom now? Are you going to set up your kingdom now? Are you going to set up your kingdom now? And can I sit on the right? And would you put Peter down like on the end? (laughs) They were always bickering, always fighting about it. After the resurrection, when Jesus appears after the resurrection, right? The disciples gather around him. You know what their question is? You're going to set up your kingdom now? They still hadn't gotten it. That's why I said I wish I could talk about this kind of hints at why Jesus said, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because they didn't understand what it meant to be Christ. They were going to be preaching a false Christ. They had expected Jesus to smash the Roman Empire and the false religious leaders. They expected him to set up his kingdom on earth. And it wasn't happening. And he wasn't letting it happen. You remember at the Sea of Galilee when he fed all of those people and and Jesus said, all right, disciples, get in the boat. And they were saying, we want you to be king. We want you to be king. We want you to be king. And he's telling his disciples, quickly, men, get into the boat and I'll catch up with you later. But I think he was fearful that the disciples would be on the, on the side of the crowds. Get into the boat. And he wasn't letting their expectations be fulfilled. Rather, all that seemed to have happened 
was all, all, really the only thing that had been accomplished was the making of some very serious enemies. The Jews were out to kill him. Herod was hoping to get his hands on him. The crowds had been sorely disappointed because he wasn't, he wasn't going to use his power to topple Rome. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy, his brothers and sisters. It seems all they succeeded in doing for these past two and a half years was to disenfranchise themselves from everyone in Israel. It just wasn't working out. This was not going the way they had expected. And this is an important point for us as an American church. Just because more people are not coming to Christ at this moment in time does not mean that the gospel is somehow failing or that the church is doing something wrong and should change or reinvent, seems to be the term that's often used. We don't need to reinvent ourselves. The message that I want you to hear this morning is no matter, no matter what the world thinks of us, we are to be faithful. To be faithful with the gospel. Your job is to leave here and take the gospel with you and share it with people. Are you nervous about that? Some of you say, no, let me at them. Can't wait until Friday night when we go back downtown. You know what? There are very few of you who are like that. There are a few of you, praise God. Some of you like to stand up on a soapbox and preach down there. And praise God for that, you know? I was sitting on the airplane coming home this week, and, um, and this lady was sitting next to me, and she was very engaging. And I thought, okay, this might be an opportunity to share the gospel, but uh, kind of makes me nervous. Um, I mean, I can do it, but I mean, if she gets mad at me on the plane, it could be really, I don't know, bad things could happen. You know, you envision the plane crashing, boom, right? <laughs> I mean, this is where your mind goes. I mean, at least mine. You know, what, what bad thing could happen? And, um, and you know what? I, I started in, and I, I, I said, do you mind if I... As she, by then, she knew uh, I was a pastor, and I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And she said, no, go ahead. I said, it's a, it's a pastor question. Are you sure? And she said, yeah, yeah, I'm fine with that. And I asked her if she were to die today and God were to say, why should I let you into my heaven? What, what would you say to him? And what do you think she said? She said what everybody says. I'm good enough. I mean, she said that in her own way. But I'm good enough. And I said to her, you know what? That's what everybody says. Hey, every time I ask somebody that, that's what they say. You know, 30 years ago, if you would ask me that question, I would have answered just like you. But I learned some things from the Bible about God's view on who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Would you be interested in hearing some of that? And she said, sure. And away we went. And by the time we landed, uh, she had promised me that she would find her Bible wherever it may be hidden, and start reading John. And I led her through the first few verses. And who knows? But you know what? Everybody gets nervous when you share the gospel. You don't want to be rejected. But here's the thing. Jesus was rejected. Are you willing to follow the rejection of Christ? Are you willing to participate in the shame of Christ? So it was just at this moment that Jesus made 
his promise, right? When the disciples thought all was lost. This is going badly. And Jesus says, men, I will build my church. I will build my church. Jesus' men needed to know this plan was right, right on schedule. Nothing was lost. Things were moving along according to God's sovereign providential plan, and nothing was going to inhibit it. It should be instructive for us, beloved. As one scholar writes, no matter how persecuted, martyred, rejected, or slandered, or poor, or ignoble the, the true church may seem, the Lord will not abandon his chosen ones. When the people of God seem weakest, look again. Jesus is still building his church. The original plan is still in operation. Modern times are no threat to his sovereign purposes. The circumstances of our troubled world do not alter his design. And no matter how corrupt and worldly the visible church has been or may become, Jesus Christ is still building his church. And he is building it on the original sure foundation of apostolic teaching and ministry. In the last 25 years, there have been a number of occasions when we've had people come through and chide us somewhat. They say things like, you know, you could build this church a lot faster if you just painted the walls and ceiling black and brought in some high-tech special effects lighting and a fog machine, maybe. <laughs> or maybe establish a more modern worship band or, you know, you could, your church could really Go to the next level if you preach shorter sermons. I still have time on this one. <laughs> if you preach ser uh, shorter sermons and, and if you didn't seem so black and white all the time. Or I think it would be no time at all before you outgrew these buildings if you would just quit singing those old hymns and become a little more culturally relevant in how you dress you know what? We're not going to do any of that. You know why? Because this isn't my church, and we are not building it. The church is the Lord's, and he is more committed to building it than I could ever be. I don't know how to build the church. I have no clue. You should have heard the elders this morning trying to make one decision. <laughs> <laughs> We're so ignorant. We just don't know what God is doing. He's not privy. He doesn't talk to us, except through his word. And besides all of that, we're not going to reach more people for Christ by acting more like the world. God draws men and women to himself through the preaching of the word, which was first of all delivered to the apostles and then passed on to faithful men. Moreover, the Lord has given us one overriding command, namely, preach the word. And I take that to mean not only preach it, but minister it, serve it up, talk about it, engage with people, take the risk, bear the shame if you have to. You just never know. 
And we do know what God has required of us. God has not called pastors of churches to be novel. He's called us to be faithful. And the measure of the church is not its size. The measure of the church is its depth of love for Christ and for one another and even for unbelievers who we strongly disagree with but whom God has put a love in our hearts for them. It's not about how many people we have showing up on Sunday, but about how well those who do show up know God and love his son and obey his word. That's the true measure of a mature Christian. That's a true measure of a mature church. We don't measure the church by how many unbelievers or nominal believers like us. At the end of his life, consider this. If that was Paul's perspective, let's make the church something that people like. At the end of his life in ministry, Paul wrote these words to Timothy. All who were in Asia turned away from me. I mean, and not just unbelievers, but, it, but his own friends. 2 Timothy 1.15. And chapter 4, he says, at my first defense, no one supported me. All, what's the next word? Deserted me. Nobody wanted to be near Paul. Nobody wanted to be near him. He's dangerous. Being near Paul could mean being arrested. Yeah, just as it did with Jesus, who, by the way, was abandoned by all of his. Did their lack of acceptability to the culture compel them to reinvent their message and ministry? No. They just kept preaching the word. They just kept ministering the word. They just kept taking risks for the sake of the gospel and calling every man everywhere to repent and believe the truth. And today around the world, it's estimated that more people are coming to genuine saving faith and the knowledge of Jesus Christ than ever before in history. I don't know if that's true. Maybe. I wouldn't, wouldn't doubt that the Lord may be doing that all over the place. Uh, we've been to Uganda. We've seen how many people come to Christ through the ministry of SOS. It's astounding. And all they're doing is ministering the word. I mean, the, the SOS, right? You know, you know what SOS stands for? Sufficiency of Scripture. That's what they named their ministry, Shannon Hurley and the team. But you know where it's primarily happening? Not in countries like America, where Christians are the most prosperous, trendy, and self-assured, but in countries where Christians are the most, what's the next word? Persecuted. You know what? We see ourselves as the center of the circle of the church in modern times. You know what? We are so far on the fringe. We are so ineffective. And it's not because we um, haven't figured out the right recipe to get people to like the gospel. Rather, it's because we're not even talking about the gospel. We don't love the gospel. And dare I say, we may not love Jesus. We love our comforts. We love our provisions. And why don't we pray? We, we view prayer as pushing the button to our divine butler, 
asking for more comforts to come down, to make our lives a little smoother and healthier and happier. Whereas in so many countries around the world, think of China right now, when they cry out to God, it's save us, help us, save us. You see, faithful churches are not in danger of becoming obsolete. Jesus said, not even the gates of Hades, we'll talk about that next week, not even the gates of Hades can thwart its progress. And we have the privilege of being a very small part of God's enormous plan of redemption through the church. And all I can say, Calvary Bible Church, is may we be found faithful in the ministry of his word and letting your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in the day he visits us. But the commission is not go therefore and be nice. It's go and speak. Go and speak lovingly, graciously, but the whole truth, all of the truth, and call them to repent. One of the brothers here, I won't embarrass him, he's talking about sharing the gospel, and I, I was instructed by this, ministering the gospel to his family members. And when he got done, he said, you have now heard the only gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not harden your hearts against it. That's what we're called to tell people. This is God's truth. Do not harden your heart. That's what the author of Hebrews said, right? When we come back next week, we'll pick up where we left off and consider the preciousness of the church. This is, this is great. When you see Jesus' love for the church, I think it'll warm your heart. The invincibility of the church and the authority of the church. And altogether, we will understand that no power on earth can stand against Jesus' promise to build his church. And you know how he builds his church? He builds it as one person. He either stands up like this and preaches the gospel you know, Greg Laurie was just preaching the gospel to like hundreds of thousands of people. Here, it may be, we may have 300 people here uh, in these two rooms today. You may have two or three little ones. Some of you have 15. No, not really. <laughs> but you have a ready audience that needs to hear the gospel. Some of you work in places where it's risky to talk about the gospel. And God would have you look for opportunities to proclaim it graciously, carefully, and call all men everywhere to repent. But here's the thing. I suspect there are some in this room who are hearing what I'm saying, and you know right now you're not a part of what God is doing. You are not a part of his church. And I'm not talking about Calvary Bible Church. I'm talking about his household. He is not your father. And you are not his child because you have not bowed the knee to him. You have not bowed the knee saying something like, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh God, the only thing I have to offer you is my sin. You know what Jesus says? One of his first statements in his first sermons was this. Blessed are 
the poor in spirit. You know what that means? Blessed are those who see themselves as spiritually bankrupt. If you haven't come to a place where you realize you have nothing to offer God, he is king. You don't accept him. The only question is, will he accept you? And the answer is yes, but on his terms. You come to him not with your righteousness. You repent of your righteousness. You come to him as one who is needy. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And I would say to you, if you fit that description, fly to him. Today, right now, fly to Christ. Flee to him. Run to him. He will not turn you away. He will receive you. And you will be his forever. Let's pray. Well, Father, once again, I find that words creak and groan under the weight and the glory of Christ and his church. We have such a low view in America of the church as if it were some kind of afterthought, some kind of club that we can join or not join. And Lord, you love your church and you're teaching us to love your church. I know, Father, it's possible to drift into error in exalting the church, but we're nowhere near exalting the church too much. So help us, Father, to see what you have taught us about the church. May our lives conform to your truth for our own joy and for your great glory. These things we pray in Jesus' name.